There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. In the 80s, Slayer helped reinvent the sound of metal. Now, three decades later, they're still as intense and controversial as ever. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. Today we'll sit down with members of death metal demon Slayer and review the new albums by Richard Thompson and Weezer. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Talk about the battle for domination, Greg. We are going to see an epic fight coming soon between Google and Apple as those two digital giants vie to be the number one seller of music over the Internet. iTunes is already there. 70% of all digital music sales in the U.S. go through the iTunes music store. Been that way for seven years. They've been the dominant force in selling digital music. Google doesn't want to leave any piece of the digital universe untouched. It wants a piece of everything. Its Android operating system for mobile platforms has been the fastest growing, in part because it's an open source system. They would like to compete with the iPad, the iPhone, so that you can go on to a Google platform, find some music you like, and with one click, download it. Apparently... Google's people behind the scenes over the last couple of months have been talking to the major labels to set something up that would be a strong competitor to the iTunes store. The music industry, they like this idea because Apple has been big enough that it's been able to dictate terms to it. They'd rather have two competitors going head-to-head with the battle of of who is going to be able to control not only music downloads, but but television and movies, anything that can be downloaded and, you know, complete with advertising. There's a lot of money at stake here. And uh, both Google and Apple have been shooting up in their stock prices on news that this epic showdown is coming. Apple's not sitting still, though, Jim. While this announcement was being made, Apple announced that it is getting into social networking. Where we stand right now is we've got your uh, Facebooks and your MySpaces, and then you've got your digital stores like iTunes. Well, now iTunes and Apple is saying, let's bring the social networking into our service. They've created this ping social servicing network that is going to be incorporated into iTunes. You mentioned the one-click world. We're moving it closer to it in every possible way. Now, if you're a member of iTunes, you can join ping. You become able to share musical information with your peers on that network and then instantly buy the music that you're talking about. There are other services, other music services that have social networking functions, Pandora, Zune, but the one advantage that iTunes and Apple have is that there are already 160 million iTunes users, so that social network immediately has major clout once it gets going. 
I can't tell you what it really is. I can only tell you what it feels like. And right now, it's a steel knife in my windpipe. I can't breathe, but I still fight. Well, I can fight. As long as the wrong feels right, it's like I'm in flight. High off a log, drunk from my hate. It's like I'm huffing pain. I love her the more I suffer. I suffocate. Right before I'm about to drown, she resuscitates me. She hates me. That is Eminem, who's at the center of a major news story that could have huge implications for the way royalties are paid out to recording artists in the future, and that is going to cost the record industry lots of money. There was a recent U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that unanimously reversed a 2009 federal decision in a lawsuit filed by Eminem's production company against his record label. And basically what it says is that now... Eminem should be paid a licensing fee rather than a royalty rate for all the songs that have been downloaded from his recovery album. We're talking about 6.3 million song downloads from that album alone. Now, he was paid at the traditional royalty rate. Basically, what the record industry was arguing was that he should be paid at the traditional royalty rate for a song being purchased, which is about 18%. Eminem was arguing that, no, this is not a traditional sale that's going on here. I'm licensing this song to these services, much like I would license a song to a TV show or a movie soundtrack. The royalty rate bumps up to about 50% per use at that time, about a triple rate from what he had been getting previously. So talk about the math here. 6.3 million songs, triple your royalty rate. That's a lot more money in Eminem's pocket. If this ruling sticks, and it looks like it may, this could spell bad news for the record industry because now they're going to be having to pay out triple the rate to artists whose music is being downloaded from stores like iTunes. That is the song Crystallized by the English trio The XX from their uh, 2009 album Self-Titled. We were big fans of it. We had them on Sound Opinions earlier this year performing live. And now the English music industry has crowned them the award winners of this year's Mercury Prize. Mercury Prize, I think, is a lot more credible, we say this every year, in some ways than the Grammys. Because while there are elements of the music industry having a say about who produced the best album of the year in a fairly large pool, there's a dozen contenders, there are also rock critics and people who care deeply about music. Chairman of the judges panel this year? The great critic Simon Frith. You and I have both read his books. He truly is a deep thinker about music. He said there is one reason the uh, XX won this prize atmosphere. All about that wonderful, mysterious, deep, dark, dense mood that they created on that self-titled album. One that is mature far beyond their years. This is a group in their young 20s. They beat out 
one of the veterans of the British rock scene, Paul Weller, you know, who has been making consistently great records from the early days as the mod godfather leading the jam through the Style Council. His solo albums in the last couple of years have been really underrated, I think. He was the favorite. Like, let's give it to Paul. (laughs) And, you know, the way the Grammys occasionally throw one to uh, Eric Clapton. Uh, But there were some other strong contenders, too. Laura Marling was on the list, Dizzy Rascal, Mumford & Sons, Corinne Bailey Ray. I think the XX deserves the prize, and good for them for winning it. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Raining Blood by Slayer. The metal band formed in 1981 in California and is considered one of the most influential in the genre's history. We're talking about lead singer Tom Araya, guitarist Jeff Henneman and Kerry King, and drummer Dave Lombardo. They helped to establish that speed metal sound of that era, and they've also racked up a fair bit of controversy over the years. Slayer's look and imagery, that you know, they talked about the demonism and violence in their lyrics. Sometimes that's overshadowed their musical virtuosity. Many of you are going to remember the name Slayer primarily because it was bandied about by the Parents Music Resource Center in the 80s, headed at the time by Tipper Gore. I really think, Greg, that the PMRC would have liked Slayer to return to the bowels of the underworld from whence (laughs) they sprang. But the band has continued going strong for more than three decades. In fact, I think their last couple of albums are as great as anything they've ever recorded. They were out on a national tour, and we got the chance to sit down with Kerry King and Dave Lombardo and reflect on Slayer's career. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So, you guys are kids when you started this band in California. Yes, we were. And Kerry, was kind of you and Jeff Henneman, basically, at the core of it, or how did, how did that start exactly? I would say I did fishing and found everybody but Dave actually found me but you know playing with Jeff playing with Dave then bringing Jeff in to play with Dave and then all of us going to play with Tom you mm-hmm. know it just kind of it's aligned you know mm-hmm. it all just fell together in an odd way and was there like a vision at that point you know what, what's this band going to sound like who what are we going to play like was there a sense of that or was it just four guys getting together in a room and bashing something out yeah I'd, I'd say that yeah because <laughs> I mean uh, you were probably 16, because me and Jeff were 17. Yep, I was. You know, we just got together with people like the same music we liked, because we had no intention of making up new music. We had no idea how to approach it. First gig at a high school? Your high school? No. No, first, our first gig was a... At a park. Southgate Park Auditorium. Battle of the Bands. Battle of the Bands on Halloween. <laughs> Did you win? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think we were any good. Craig was alluding to whether the sound was there when you first came together or not. You guys have become so iconic as one of, you know, the defining bands of a whole subgenre of metal. What were the ingredients that went in? What was on everybody's turntable at that point? I think Dave was probably the one that, that, and still today, is the one that likes everything under the sun. At that point, I was probably really into Priest and Maiden, and Jeff had jumped off into hardcore West Coast, more West Coast than anything else, hardcore punk, and that's where the speed and aggression came from. Mm. And Dave liked everything, so it just worked. Yeah, but the punk rock really fueled, I think, the heavy metal that we were into, you know, the Judas Priest style of riffing. You know, we brought that into 
you know, that style of guitar riff. Yeah. Kind of blended those two together. And the idea that there could be metal music that didn't have fat, the way that punk didn't have fat, right? Well, we metal, metal had the, the intricate riffs, you know, mm-hmm. and wasn't only singing about angst. <laughs> right. 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 Um, punk was just based on a vibe, I think. Could have been three chords, could have been six chords, but it didn't really matter. It was just the vibe. A lot of people talk about that early 80s thing as, as sort of the shift in sound. Well, you, you talk about the aggression coming from metal. But, you know, the, the speed, the thrash metal thing, you guys are considered some of the pioneers of that. Was, was that a conscious thing we're going to play three times as fast as anybody else? I mean, we're talking about 220 BPM, I think, by the time you guys were making Rain and Blood. I think that developed slowly as, remember, we were young, adrenaline, testosterone, we were, you know, high on life, and um, with the combination of that and playing live, and it just, it just sped up in a way mm-hmm. to, to become comfortably fast, and to a point where, hey, this feels good. I was going to have the same story probably worded a little different, you know, Dave is, like, we bring stuff in, and, you know, none of us are... Like if I made it up or Jeff made it up, none of us really own it yet. You know, we're showing it to Dave and it naturally progresses speed wide for, for probably a couple of weeks till it finds that place where we know this is where we got to stop. Mm. And I don't know how we know that, but we're talking about it last night because one, th- one of the songs in the shows was borderline right there. It's like, it's any faster. I can't keep up. <laughs> and we, we just ended there. That's where it was. But were you conscious of like, this is kind of like the new thing? Did you guys feel no. like you were doing something kind of the next for me all i wanted to do was be the the anti-la i wanted to be as far away from poison and rat as you can possibly (laughs) get i think we did it and what was it about those bands that was turning you off that said i don't we don't want to be them i never understood why girls wanted to go see guys dress like girls (laughs) i never got it you know to this day i don't get it Mm -hmm. it wasn't real to me dave i'm looking at your t-shirt you got a gene krupa t-shirt on there it's pretty cool and you are the guy, a lot of people say, you know, man, the double kick drum, that, that was like huge innovation. When, when did you start toying with the elements of here's what I'm going to play here, here's how I'm going to hit it, expanding the sound of, of metal in a lot of ways? Well, as we were writing the songs early on, you know, of course, they would give me the idea, hey, why don't you put double bass in this section? Mm-hmm. So I would have to find ways of developing patterns to, you know, bring that in to, to the riffing that they were bringing. So it was really, it's really natural and almost innocent um, how we did it. Because we really, I didn't take lessons. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to records and mimicking what was on the records. So it was just instinct and and just experience of what I had listened to prior in my life or during that time that I was just taking little bits of information and creating my own. Listening to Gene Krupa and jazz at drummers that at that time? time? No, but short, like uh, I was listening to Latin jazz, 
at that time, I was really exposed to a lot of that through my brother-in-law, who was telling me, now this is real music. I go, no, dude, this stuff, you know, and I would play him some Judas Priest or, or Kiss or Iron Maiden. Funny part of that story is Dave never wanted a second kick. Oh, yeah? Remember? No. <laughs> he didn't want it. It's like, I don't need that second kick. I'm like, listen, man, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And we kind of persuaded you into giving it a shot, and you loved it. Parents should realize that we have explicit and graphic sex, extreme violence, suicide in lyrics that is going to children that are sometimes not even teenagers yet and young teenagers. Well, let's talk about the way that you guys first probably broached the mainstream consciousness outside the metal community, outside the rock world. When this woman, Tipper Gore, starts attacking the content of the songs. And I mean, we were both starting our careers at that point or, or just beginning to write about it. I mean, it was just like, you don't understand this band. And yet there you are on television on Capitol Hill and other people jumping on the band. Where it's like, have you ever listened to this band? Do you know what these lyrics are about? Do you know what this band is about? You know, now that that's ancient history, how does it feel to have been demonized in such a way? I remember when all that went down, and I said, the only thing this is going to do is make kids want it more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And realistically, they did, you know, and if that kid wanted that record, he was going to get it. You know, I don't know if he had an older friend, an older brother, you know, they're going to get it. It's, it's, you're, you're almost making it like the drug industry when you ban things, you know what I mean? It's like, if somebody wants it, they're going to get it. Carrie, I know, I know you've got a kid, at least one, right? Mm-hmm. Put yourself in Tipper Gore's shoes for a minute. I know that sounds really uncomfortable. To yeah, me, I don't think they fit. Flip it around. If you were her and, and, and sort of dealing with, okay, there's controversial content, explicit words. There's stuff in here that may be inappropriate, quote unquote, for a young kid to be listening to. How would you have handled it differently than well, she did? Be a parent and take responsibility for your offspring. Mm-hmm. Don't blame me for something you can't control. Period. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> I mean, right. Sorry, I'm a realist. Right, yeah. Yeah. Your kid comes across some two live crew record or something like that. You say, hey, that's okay to listen to, but here's some things you need to know, or how, how, do, you, how do you handle a situation like that? I think a lot of people don't give kids enough credit. Mm-hmm. You know, 90, 95% of them understand it's entertainment, you know, and I'm not sitting here after I leave the studio going to go have a beer with Satan at the corner bar, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll have more of our conversation with Kerry King and Dave Lombardo of Slayer. Then Greg and I will review the new Lost-inspired album by Weezer.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're talking to Kerry King and Dave Lombardo, the guitarist and drummer from the heavy metal band Slayer. The band was a relatively underground Southern California outfit in the early 80s until they released their most revered and influential album. That was Rain in Blood in 1986. And that album was produced by the then-fledgling hip-hop mogul Rick Rubin. So I asked Carrie and Dave what it was like to work with someone whose strength was in such a different genre of music. You got together with Ruben. He signs you to a hip-hop label, Def Jam. Were you guys a little little weirded out by the, the whole idea of being approached by a guy who was essentially running a hip-hop label at that time? Did you see any connection between what you guys were doing and what was happening in, in New York City hip-hop with Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys at that time? I think at the time, just being out of what we were in and going into a major label scenario mm. was good for us. And somebody that was cutting edge, like Rick Rubin, I think boosted us and helped us and put us in a different category of musicians where this guy, Rick Rubin, you know, took notice, hey, there's something special about this band that I don't see anywhere else. And I think it was a great move on our part. Well, obviously, you made a classic record with him, right? Absolutely, yeah. In, uh, your third record, Rain and Blood. Carrie, what was the big difference for you in, in working with Ruben between what Slayer was and what it became with that record? Well, the obvious one's budget. Mm-hmm. But we didn't even care about that. We still wanted to go in and work, you know, till the sun came up. That was just who we were. And, you know, we've been asked a million times, did you know these 10 songs were, you know, historically going to be referred to as one of the greatest thrash metal albums of all times? And... No, they were the next 10, mm-hmm. you know? We just went in and did them. Mm-hmm. And more on that speed story, I know when we started learning that record, it was longer than 30 minutes. <laughs> when yeah. it ended up, it was like 28 <laughs> and change. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and Rick made us realize we didn't need the, the reverb, like the venom sound, so to speak. And when he took all that reverb out and cleaned it up, man, it was just brutal. It just punches you in the forehead from top to bottom. I think it also kind of showed people that you guys could really play. At that point, it was kind of like, wow, these guys are really good at what they're doing. You can make all these comments about the lyrics, but there was no doubt that there was sort of a level of musicianship on that record. Let me make a note also that that was before computers. Mm -hmm. That was before recording digitally. That was all on tape. But was the band always playing together at the same time, Dave? Yes. So not even slicing with a razor blade or... Uh, I mean, there was times maybe, that yes, happened. Yeah. Yes. But it's not like with Pro Tools where you're mixing no, and matching verses. No. and That's abuse to music. But it's so easy. It yeah. is. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it makes our life easy. But, yeah. 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 And it's interesting, too. You talk about the 28-minute record because at the time, a lot of the iconic metal records at the time were, were getting longer. You know, Metallica was making these eight, eight nine, ten-minute tracks, and you guys were going in the exact opposite direction. Yeah. Was it almost like you were, you were listening? Were you listening at all to what, what everybody else was doing and kind of saying, we're going to go in the exact opposite direction? Or Nah. No, we just did what we wanted to do, regardless of what was happening. You know, I, I, I can't remember when Puppets came out in, in regards to Rain and Blood. I know they were really close, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, that was a real good time for music because... That's my favorite Metallica record, Master of Puppets. And most 
fans' favorite Slayer albums, Rain and Blood, so something, mm-hmm. something was going on that year. And then you guys went exact opposite direction yet again, you know, with the next record. You know, you follow up one of the fastest, hardest hitting records ever, and then you just completely hit the brakes with the next record. That a, again, like we're not going to repeat ourselves. We're going to go somewhere else with this with this record. That one was definitely thought about because um, you know putting the set list together, it was just brutality. It was just blasting people in the face, you know. And there's no dynamic to the performance. So mm-hmm. we're like, all right, we just did this south of heaven. Let's you know concentrate on being heavy. So we had something to offset, you mm-hmm. know, all the rain and blood and and hella weight stuff. And it was an interesting move because you would become popular. I, mean, I, I think uh, Rain and Blood ended up selling like a, a half mil. Huge success considering that you guys are essentially an underground band. And then South of Heaven, you, you basically go away from the sound that made you popular, <laughs> which was kind of a perverse move at the time. I mean, were any of you saying, I don't know, maybe we should just do more of the same. You know, we got, we got popular doing this. When you're in a band, I mean, you always need to evolve. You need to try new things. Let's say if we tried to repeat Rain and Blood... You can't really try to top yourself. You, you have to try to experiment and see if that's, that's the way to go. So I think it's great, the direction that the band went at that time, because like he says, it brings diversity to the set. And, you know, there's a lot groovier stuff. Mm. And then again, it shows our musicianship, too, that we can play slow. It's not just a bunch of noise. doing that record it made me realize that we left something behind on rain and blood that we had to go back and make sure we got to take with us mm. um so i think tom sang way too clean on that record because i like the intenseness of the rain and blood album mm. and even though there's great songs on south of heaven i don't like it as much because of the vocal performance so i knew in doing seasons in the abyss that we had to we had to blend those and make the happy medium of sorts welcome to my world involve yourself within my Nineteen ninety record seasons in the abyss was kind of like a the fifth album that seemed to be like kind of a summing up of where you guys were at that point. It seemed like all the all the great stuff that uh, in fact you're playing it on this tour. 
yeah. it seems to be one of those albums that, okay, you want everything that, that's good about Slayer. It's it's all on this record. Did you feel that way when you were making it? That that was kind of that kind of a statement. I think for me, we were taking all the good parts of the past and making a record out of it. Yeah, you hear that most again on the new one, uh, World Painted Blood. I think it's everything anybody could like Slayer for, and it's all on that record. So it's it's just kind of set us up for what we were gonna be. I think mm-hmm. what we thought we were gonna be. We are talking to uh, Kerry King and Dave Lombardo of Slayer. For all the, the talk about the shock value of the lyrics, there's there's an artistry there. there there's a poetry, not to get overly heavy. Uh, I mean, did that ever bother you guys? I mean, there's a lot of thought there. There's a lot of intellectual thought. There's you, Three of you are writing the lyrics at different points, right? And mm-hmm. um, does that ever tick you off? People say that all we are is shock, and yet there is this content there? Well, I mean, realistically, you can't write those kind of things without being intelligent enough to back them up. Look at our writings. Look at Marilyn Manson's writing. Anybody that writes, you know, not straight down the road stuff. Yeah, I look back to Angel of Death and Disciple, you know, different eras, but the same kind of thing. And Jihad, for instance, you know, if if, if somebody took those lyrics and made a documentary out of it, mm. it was on Discovery Channel, mm. it'd win awards. But yeah. Slayer wrote it, so it's dangerous. There has been this uh, increasing political bent over the last couple of records, putting the death, destruction, blood, and mayhem in the context of, uh, hey, look around. There's death, destruction, blood, and mayhem everywhere. Talk about rain and blood. It's been less storytelling and more kind of repertorial. The funny thing is, Disciple came out on God Hates Us All, which everybody knows came out on September 11th. And you look at Disciple, and it looks like I knew something. I just... You know, watch the news and take little snippets and make a song out of it, and it actually turned into reality almost, almost exactly. One of the things that I find incredibly inspiring at a, at a Slayer show is the sense of community. If you say you're a Slayer fan, it still means something. You're part of a community. You're part of an aesthetic. Is that a heavy responsibility? Is that something you guys ever think about? I know what you're saying, but I think just being who we are, making up the songs we make up, doing these kind of interviews, doing in-stores, you know, you're giving back and you're seeing who's coming. You know, it's still the original guys and their kids, and their grandkids, mm. and older brothers and younger brothers, and, you know, sisters now, too. I mean, the, the <laughs> amount of women coming to the shows is just staggering, especially the ones in the pits that are thrown with the guys. That's impressive. Yeah, you see it in the front row. Yeah. See the poor girls there all squished among these guys. <laughs> you know? What did I get myself into? <laughs> 
Well, what's interesting, I wanted to follow up on what Jim was saying, though, because I think it's an excellent point. These last couple of records have been as intense as anything you guys have ever done. In fact, I think there's almost been kind of a rebirth in the band, it feels like to me. Like, the music is, is every bit as good as it ever was. And if it's possible, it seemed like when you were younger, you guys were maybe playing around with some of the shock tactics and sort of playing around with, yeah, okay, we are kind of edgy. You know, you think that was satanic? Well, we'll give you a satanic song, you know, almost playing with it. Now, it seems like if... If it's possible, you guys are angrier than ever at what you're seeing in the world. We're, we're really good at like, being angry now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's weird. It's like you think, oh, you know, a little bit older, they're going to lose a little edge. It seems like, no, you guys are more ticked off now. It seems like it's got a more of a serious edge to it in some ways. I, I know what you're talking about. I can see it in things I've written. I guess I'd attribute that to being older and, and seeing things differently, you know certainly doesn't mean I can't be upset about what's going on, but I like to, um, I like to invoke thought. I like people to, you know, if you get anything out of something I read, I don't care if you believe anything I say, but if it makes you think about something and question something that you've never questioned before, then I've done my job. What about the, the reaction of the fans? What kind of feedback do you guys get? Because there, there has been the myth about the band that the fans are actually scarier than the band. Yeah. The, I had a weird story in Spain once I've told a million times, but um, we were out signing after the show, you know, they had them all line up somewhere outside and, you know, I'm rolling down the line with my pen, signing some stuff. And this guy hands me what I assume is a Sharpie. <clears throat> and I'm like, no, dude, I got my own. I'm, I'm good. And, you know, he doesn't understand a word I'm saying, but <laughs> you know, he's grunting at me with his and I'm like, oh, he must have the special pen. So I grabbed his pen and he's getting, hands me a scalpel, uh-huh. wants me to carve Slayer or something into him. I'm like, Man, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll sign anything you got, but I'm not going to cut you, you know? Yeah, wow. But he was he was intense, man. He wanted it. He saw, you know, some <laughs> of the imagery on our albums and stuff, and he decided it was his time. Yeah, their enthusiasm is a little scary. They're really nervous. Mm-hmm. Their hands are really sweaty. And, you know, they're shaking. Mm-hmm. You think, man, this guy's nuts. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. You know, they're just happy to see you. Sure are. Thanks for coming out. <laughs> now, now this... Go get a napkin. We'll, you know, we'll yeah. dry your hands. This summer, you guys toured uh, stadiums in Europe with the Big Four. Uh, it was you, Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax. And there has been an aspect of it. There's the infighting between the bands and all this. How much of that is myth? How much of reality? Was it good to sort of be on the stage with those three other bands? It's all true. We all hate each other. We've been fighting <laughs> for the past 20-some years. <laughs> I have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think it goes back, though, and actually I was talking to Dave Mustaine about this a few days ago. Like, to my mind, it reminds me of any great period in music, there's always a little bit of competition or maybe a lot of competition between the best bands of the day, and they make each other better uh, through that. And I think it's been true of almost every year in rock history. Did you feel that was the case when you guys were basically all coming up together in the 80s? I think in the back of our minds, you know, we might have thought, you know, you'd hear a record and go, I can make up something better than that. But that's about the end of it, you know. I mean, I truly didn't like some of these guys. (laughs) We had, I didn't talk to Mustaine for like 20 years, Mm -hmm. not even a word. It's like, I ain't talking to him. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this tour came up and before we even, you know, touch base with each other, I'm like, I would be a douche if I didn't let this tour happen for the fans. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was my first, you know, first thought, you know, the fans deserve this. So I got in touch with him on, I think is on the way to the Australian gigs. And I said that to him, I walked up and I said, Hey dude, I don't think I spoke to you in 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, and he's said through the press a million times, you know, I don't want to repair a friendship. I want to start a new one. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll see where it goes. 
And what happened? We're still seeing where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but playing together. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it seems like the band is, in a lot of ways, as I said, making music as good as it ever has. Um, but Tom has had some medical issues. He's also given some interviews where he's talked about, you know, he sees a, a sort of a finite period here for the band. I mean, where are you, where are you guys at right now in terms <sighs> of that? It's taken me, I was going to say this when you were talking about Dave playing a minute ago, sometime on this album cycle, you know, I turned around, look at Dave one night, and I'm like, this guy's going to be like deal of drums. He's going to be on that drum stool when he dies. You know, <laughs> I don't see <laughs> Dave ever stopping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was refreshing because I'm like, all right, I got somebody to play with now. Cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know what, what Tom's talking about. You know, if he feels like that, he hasn't discussed it with us. It mm-hmm. could be, I don't, I, I haven't read the interviews, so I don't know if it's coming for him, if the words are getting twisted. I don't really know. It's coming to me in different angles, too. Do you feel creatively right now that the band is at a, at a kind of a, a different level? Yes. We work much, uh, so well. We work so well together now. You know, in the studio, writing, and on tour. Dave, this is like your third stint. You've been you've been a lifer in this band, in and out at various stages. Yeah. Where, <laughs> of those three stints, which one has been the most enjoyable for this one. from, from this your one. standpoint? And what's the difference? Why 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 is it different now than older it was? and wiser? Yeah, it's like hey, here I am. I was put onto this world, and here I am playing drums and playing in a band, going on tour. How how can things be? You know, why should I complain? Kerry King, Dave Lombardo of Slayer, it's been uh, an honor and a pleasure having you guys on Sound Opinions. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, boys. Thanks, man. Very cool. To sound off on Slayer or anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or connect to us on Facebook or Twitter. Next up, Greg and I will review the new record by veteran singer and songwriter and guitarist Richard Thompson. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.
battered walls Mayhem on the bed Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is the song Crime Scene from the new album by Richard Thompson, Dream Attic. Greg, I think if people don't know the name Richard Thompson, there's a hole in their life. (laughs) What a phenomenal career stretching back to the mid-60s in Great Britain. First off, five extraordinary solo albums with the distinguished British folk rock group Fairport Convention. They created that genre for the UK the way the birds did in the U.S., Thompson went solo. He thought the material he was writing didn't fit Fairport Convention anymore in the early 70s. He had an extraordinary backing singer named Linda Peters on his first couple of solo albums. They got married. Then came six incredible albums from Richard and Linda Thompson, including a record, Shoot Out the Lights, which basically chronicled their very painful split in front of the microphones. Mm -hmm. It's considered one of the all-time killer divorce albums. Excuse us for taking pleasure in their pain. Thompson has not rested on his laurels. He had a great run for Capitol, four more records in the late 80s and early 90s that I think really introduced him to the U.S. belatedly. People were finally starting to catch on. He was working with the producer Mitchell Froome. He had a real edge to his music. Since then, he's gone indie. He's been the subject of, I believe, two, if not three, tribute albums by young American musicians who love his work, everybody from R.E.M. and Bob Mould to Dinosaur Jr., Now comes this album where people have said for years, you know, he is an extraordinary guitarist and the way his work comes to life on stage is even better than what he does in the studio. So he had a set of 13 new songs that he decided to record live over a series of gigs in the U.S. last year. This isn't one live beginning to end show, but all of the performances were taken from these live recordings with his crack band and put together as an album. Sometimes you have audience applause, sometimes you don't, but it's Thompson playing these new tunes live. We'll come back with some thoughts, give our grade, buy it, earn it, or trash it to this album after we hear this song. It's called The Money Shuffle by Richard Thompson from Dream Addict on Sound Opinions.
That is Richard Thompson on Sound Opinions with a song called The Money Shuffle from his latest album, Dream Attic. Jim, you nailed it. One of the great guitar players of all time, really. Uh, When we talk about rock-era guitarists, I think he's definitely in that top ten. My issue with a lot of Thompson's studio recordings is that he honors the songwriter side of the Thompson persona, which is a very strong one. He's, He's got a great, powerful voice as a narrative singer, but he sometimes gives the guitar playing short shrift, and that balance is restored on this record. I think it was yeah. a brilliant idea to record his new batch of songs in a live setting, because that's where his stuff really comes alive. So he's got this quintet on the road. They do a great job. He basically is able to honor all sides of his songwriting personality, from the uh, folk-based ballads and elegies to those roadhouse rockers and those shape-shifting epics yeah. that he is so known for. But we get that Thompson guitar in a greater quantity than we'd get on any of his recent studio recordings. And for that reason alone, I think this is a cut above a very fine back catalog. This is one of the best recordings Thompson has made in the last 20 years, and I think it's a buy-it record all the way. I would agree. It's absolutely a buy-it. If you haven't experienced the joys of Thompson's music, start here and then work back. Greg and I will give you a list, okay? Because yeah. you're going to wind up owning about 10 or 12 records. I would just also point out the wit and wisdom mm. of the lyrics, whether he's very much doing a a crime noir portrait of a crime scene in the song Crime Scene or taking on the Bernie Madoffs in the world Mm -hmm. with the money shuffle. He's a great lyricist. He's got that wonderful raspy baritone and his guitar is extraordinary. So a double buy it for Dream Attic. That is Weezer with the song Memories from their eighth studio album, Hurley. Yes, this band has been recording at a prolific rate lately. Uh, Three studio albums in three years. This from a band that began in the mid-90s out of Southern California, put out two albums, the first of which was a massive seller, the second of which Pinkerton was not so massive a selling record, but has become a cult favorite among the emo punk crowd in subsequent years, and then went away for a while. When Rivers Cuomo brought the band back in 2000, they have been recording fairly steadily since then, and their popularity has increased. They've become a arena, stadium-level act in many parts of the world with a more pronounced pop-rock sound. They were considered a power-pop band back in the 90s, reflecting on their sort of nerdy, awkward, misfit lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, they've become a much more celebratory band. Rivers Cuomo has taken to wearing a Lady Gaga wigs in concert and bringing out a side of his personality that we just didn't think was there in the 90s. What right. happened to this guy? Coming on Sound Opinions earlier in the year and, and having us name the band that he would play with and write the set list for him. Yeah, so Rivers Cuomo has loosened up a good deal. We're going to review Hurley in a minute, but let's hear another track from it. I think in some ways representative of some of the songwriting that uh, Cuomo has done in his second incarnation. It's a song called Where's My Sex from Hurley on Sound Opinions. I made my 
That is the song Where's My Sex by Weezer from studio album number eight, Hurley, which I will say features a photo of the uh, the guy from Lost, <laughs> the memorable, you know, dude character from Lost on its cover. Why? Who knows? Weezer just loves to play with pop culture, loves to mess around. That's the love it or hate it song. People are, are either mm-hmm. despising Where's My Sex or loving it. I think the, the conceit was that River's young daughter pronounced the word S-O-C-K-S as sex, you know. Mm-hmm. And so Where's My Socks, Where's My Sex is come from a family of socks makers. I, whatever. He's goofing around. People have been wanting him to sing about sex again ever since Pinkerton, which mm-hmm. is an album about where do I fit in the universe uh, of relationships. And now he's doing it tongue-in-cheek, mm-hmm. laughing at them. He's continuing to work with an unlikely list of collaborators. Dan Wilson, who was in Semisonic. Desmond Child, the R&B songwriter. Ryan Adams. Linda Perry, the Hollywood hack songwriter for people like Christina Aguilera. And even that forgotten 70s country pop dude, Mac Davis. Mm -hmm. Remember that afro, right? His is almost as good as yours. Um, (laughs) Why does he do that? I I think he just likes to experiment and to fool around. He knows that not all of the experiments are successful. I don't particularly like some of the songs on here. There's a couple of of train wrecks to count the title of one song, the song with Desmond Child. But the good moments, Greg, and I think there are six or seven songs here that I really, really like, are strong enough to carry the day for me. I will give it a buy it for that reason. I, I think he's failed to make a truly convincing album in the second incarnation of Weezer, but he has written uh, more than a handful of good pop rock songs. I think his audience is looking for something that just isn't there. I mean, he's a married guy. You know, he's clearly much happier than he's ever been in his life. Yeah. Why is he going to go back to that place where he wrote Pinkerton? People want, to, want him to keep going back there. He ain't going back there, kids. He's, he's where he is now. At the same time, you know, the emotional heft isn't there. Sometimes you feel like, okay, he's just having fun. There's nothing wrong with that. 
This is a perfectly adequate power pop record. There's one moment on here at the end of the record with a song called Time Flies, which is kind of an oddity in the Weezer catalog. It's this lo-fi, almost kind of campfire song where he's really pouring his heart out. It almost feels like it belongs on one of those Rivers Cuomo solo records where he goes back into the demos in his back catalog and brings those out. I love those records, but it's a hit-and-miss affair all the way. Some good stuff, some not-so-good stuff. That's been the story of Weezer for the last decade. It's a burn-it record for me. Well, that's a burn it from you and a buy it from me on Weezer, Greg. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a great up-and-coming garage rock duo, White Mystery. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our intern is Julia Mullen-Gordon. Our producers, Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, have been looking for an exorcist ever since the Slayer guys left the building. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, you and I would like to nominate him for the next mayor of Chicago. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. My right or left up on the midnight flyer, singing like a summer breeze. New Messages. Hello, guys. My name is Willie from Los Angeles. Adore the show. I'm totally hooked. But, Jim, I'm a little fed up with your incessant championing of amateurism. This Mellencamp album that you poo-pooed is awesome. You said, quote, with T-Bone Burnett keeping it on. Dude, you're totally missing the point. Get a vintage recording deck, get one microphone, and get the hell out of the way. And let the music do the talking. Give me dollars and drive me around downtown. Solve all my problems, don't let me lose what I find. Give me good love and seal it with the kids. Drop me off with the not about the media it's the music and you are so about the media i.e you judge bands on their backstory you judge that film soundtrack for that god-awful movie that you reviewed right after it oh but you loved it because you love the attitude or you love the vibe you've got to dial in dude and dial it down sorry bye Hi, this is Marta in Chicago. Jim, your desert island pick of ride brought me back to being in high school art class and making a silk train that was my interpretive redesign of the album cover for Nowhere and making mixtapes with Vapor Trail, the song that you picked. It was an unexpected surprise to hear the music that inspired me as a teen and still sounds so great today as an adult. Thanks for the reminder to go look for those tapes.
name's Jim Wallace. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. Just wanted to comment on today's show. Guys, really, is there any reason to discuss Katy Perry's new release? I mean, come on, really. I don't need to uh, hear an analysis of her music in any, at any means whatsoever. Her music is just the worst. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work, and I'll keep listening. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Amanda from Chicago. I really enjoyed your last show and wanted to call and let you know that my eight-year-old daughter listened to the show with me. We were high-fiving all the way through when you were talking about Katy Perry. My girls are eight and ten, and they're just really getting into music, so we talk about different artists all the time. I started telling them about why I thought she was horrible in comparison to Pink or Lady Gaga. And then I said, you know, she completely stole the song, I Kissed a Girl, and it was originally written and sung by someone else. My eight-year-old daughter had to come home and immediately research this, and she heard Jill Sobule's version and was furious that Katy Perry so blatantly copied her. So she sat down to draw a picture, and I nearly lost it when she held up a picture that she'd drawn of a cat body with a Katy Perry head, and it said, Katy Perry, copycat. So thanks for a great show. Me and my girls will continue to listen faithfully. Take care. Bye-bye. I kissed a girl. I kissed a girl. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.